Testament lesson. Uh, these Sundays in Epiphany, we've been in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we're going to stick with that tonight. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. And then our gospel lesson and sermon text, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Luke chapter 6, 17 to 26. And let me just remind you, this is God's word to us and it's given to us because he loves us. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their prophets did so, so for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the gospel of our Lord. So as we enter into our third year of pandemic living, which we certainly hope is our last very soon, we are also entering into or have been in what some are now calling the second pandemic. All around the country, counselors, social workers, psychologists, therapists, are now the frontline workers treating the second pandemic, which is what people are referring to as the mental health crisis. Those in these fields are reporting more demand for their services than they have ever seen, and it's coming from all walks of life. They have returning patients, new patients, children, adults. It's happening in urban areas, rural areas. 
including the first frontline workers, those who have been treating COVID-19 patients for the past two years. They're coming in for anxiety, depression, financial stress, substance abuse, anger management, job worries, distress over our country's political polarization, conflict and relationships at home, at work, and in public. There is so much grief and loss, said Anne Campagna Dahl, a clinical psychologist in Burbank, California. One of my clients, who is usually patient, is experiencing road rage. Another client, who is a mom of two teens, is fearful and doesn't want, to want them to leave the house. My highly work-motivated client is considering leaving her career. There is an overwhelming sense of malaise and fatigue. Another clinician reports that she believes she will be treating the effects of the pandemic for the rest of her career. I certainly hope she's close to retirement. We all want to be happy. We are all driven by our pursuit of happiness. I mean, we wrote it into our Declaration of Independence, for crying out loud. Our happiness determines how we spend money. Our happiness determines where we choose to live. Our happiness determines whether we get married or stay married. Our pursuit of happiness determines whether we have children or don't have children. Our, what, our pursuit of happiness determines what we do with our bodies, our sexuality, how we shape it, how we change it, how we alter it. Our pursuit of happiness determines what we look at with our eyes, what we listen to with our ears, what we put in our mouths. And in the secular West, this is the key to life. This is the air that we breathe, and no one has, should be able to stand in the way of your happiness, even if it means you sometimes have to oppress another's agency for happiness. But are we really happy? Why is our happiness oftentimes so fleeting and unstable? All the things that we base our happiness off of, we can't control them. We can't protect them. Ultimately, they wind up enslaving us, and we wind up serving them instead of they serving us. Which may lead us to ask the question, does God want me to be happy? Does God even want to bless me? Does Jesus want to bless me? Despite all the ways I've messed up, despite all the shameful things that I've said and done and thought, does Jesus even want to bless me? Or is that not really any of his concern? Well, five times in the Sermon on the Plain, recorded for us here in Luke, which obviously has its parallels to the Sermon on the Mount found in the other Gospels, Five times Jesus says, blessed. Or, another way to translate that is, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. I want you to think about one of the first sermons in the series in Epiphany, that wedding feast in Cana, Jesus' first public miracle. What did he do? 180 gallons, remember me saying that over and over again? 180 gallons of the best Galilean wine. Yes, Jesus wants you to be happy. Jesus wants to bless you. Jesus intends that we are happy. He's not interested in us being miserable. 
But when you read the Beatitudes, Jesus' way to happiness seems completely backwards. Happy are those who are poor. Happy are those who are hungry. Happy are you when you weep. Happy are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Well, if that's how God wants me to be happy, then never mind. I'll figure it out on my own because that seems completely and utterly backwards. But that's the rub. We all want the blessings of God's kingdom, but we don't want the path to get there. And this is the pattern of Luke's gospel. This is what commentators call the great reversal in Luke. The last becoming first. The proud being brought low and the humble exalted. And God's love through Jesus coming to the outcast and the marginalized and those who don't belong. All the wrong people, right? This is the upside down, inside out path to happiness. And why shouldn't the path to happiness, according to Jesus, be backwards from the world's definitions and practices towards happiness? Because this world is broken. It already operates in reverse of how it's supposed to. You are not made to be poor. You were not made to be hungry or weep. You were not made to be hated. And yet these conditions affect every single person on our planet. And our solutions to these obstacles, to our happiness, only cause further harm to ourselves, each other, and our planet. Jesus is not saying there is anything fundamentally wrong with wealth or being full or having joy or obtaining the approval of your fellow man. But what he is saying, if you make wealth, if you make material satisfaction, if you make comfort, if you make the approval of man your consolation, the things you must have in order to be happy, then you will never get off that hamster wheel. You make being rich, being full, being pain-free, being popular, your consolation in life, make these things your emotional programs for happiness, then woe to you, because that is a never-ending cycle. You see, Jesus' ethic of virtue here in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, it's not just about how to be good. It's not a virtue of how to be a good person. It's a counter-cultural proclamation of what it means to be whole, of what it means to flourish, of what it means to be human, of what it means to be happy, this side of the new heavens and the new earth. It is to trust that there is a source of wealth and satisfaction and joy and affirmation, a great reward in heaven, he says, that never fails. It is to trust that no matter your circumstances, poor or rich, hungry or full, weeping or laughing, hated or loved, you are always in the path. You are always in the current. You are always in the presence of something that transcends all of it. Because you were created 
by God's love, for God's love. You are the beloved of Christ, and Christ is our life, and nothing can take that away. And the more and more you can silence all those other narratives, all those other emotional programs for happiness, all those other consolations, and make this truth your one consolation, can you even attempt to begin to call yourself happy? It is clear the disruption of the past two years has greatly frustrated our individual and collective emotional programming for happiness. But I fear that we have not allowed the disruption of the past two years to frustrate us enough. To frustrate us in ways that it should have. I fear we have not allowed the disruption of the past two years to transform us as much as we should have allowed it to. We can't wait for things to get back to normal. For all our consolations to be fully restored to us. Well, maybe we don't need them to be. You see, the only one keeping you from being habitually happy is yourself. But when Christ is your life, when He is your satisfaction, when He is what makes you rich, when He is what makes you full, when He is the affirmation and affection that you long for, then you can get off that hamster wheel. We can have nothing and yet have everything. And this is the key for how we can be blessed, how we can be happy in order to be a blessing to others. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's respond to God's word by confessing our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I ask you